single time that I found her Holding Jim Loving him Then Sue came along Loved me strong That's what I thought Me and Sue That died too Why are we playing this again? We are playing this because this is awesome. the music. This is the music segment where we disagree about everything, <laughs> as anybody will do when they talk about their most privately and closely held musical passions. And this is one of mine. I love Neil Diamond, and people look at me funny when I say that, as Jesse is right now. He's mortified. I thought you didn't like it. That's why we we're going to come in and kind of laugh at it. No, I actually love Solitary oh Man. Oh my gosh! And I hate coming to America. Mm. Huh. <laughs> That's interesting. Now, I don't like the production of this because this was laced in the 60s, but when you strip it down, it's a really, it's a great song. And that's what we, you know, what's always fun about music is, you know, Elvis can be great, then Elvis is in the sweet human jumpsuit and he sounds crazy. And depending on where you enter Elvis's life, you'll look at another guy and go, what were you thinking? <laughs> and this was, I think, the case with Neil Diamond. And so we were having a random discussion about music, about well, Hengler's obsession with Dave Matthews, it's, a, it's rather strange. He says he's had religious epiphanies at Dave Matthews concerts. Everyone out there is saying, Lee strange for feeling that way, because it's, it's normal. It's normal. And Jesse just doesn't understand any of it, because he doesn't get Dave Matthews. And all he does when you say Dave Matthews is he does that famous Jesse grunt. Uh, uh, that's it. You're not going to hear another word from him. Uh. And we're not sure what Alex likes because he, he, he loves Creed and then says, I'm sorry, right after he says it. Everybody's got those guilty pleasures. They just tell you know, It's true. Admit, What's but... yours, Ed? We don't know your guilty pleasures. Come clean. I... Now come clean. You've got one. Spice Girls? Spice Girls. Come you know on. What? You know what? Uh, you're getting closer. I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, who do... I, I, I like Taylor Swift. I, I would never buy her albums, but I think she's talented and a good role model, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but that's, that's not so true. terrible. That's not so terrible. I mean, Ryan Adams just recorded that Taylor Swift record. He's cool, so he's, you know she's sort of kind of cool. And you got you know you got kids too. Yeah, so, I you just know. can't think of too much crap that I actually do enjoy. But uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, no, what he's saying is that we actually enjoy garbage, but he can't. You have to be aware of what other people think of it. It's not that you consider it crap. Like for me, right. I know other people consider air supply to suck. I like air supply. Oh, that's painful. Making right. love out of nothing at all? That's great. It's stadium rock. <laughs> stadium rock. It's 2 a.m. I'm drunk again. It's heavy on my mind. Stop mumbling, Dave. <laughs> Stop mumbling. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, hey, look, we have our favorite concerts and we have our worst concert experiences. And so that's what we really have to dig into here. And uh, worst concert experience, Edwards, you're getting, you're revved up to see the show. And they come out and they just That was easy. Uh, Peter Frampton was the worst show I think I've ever seen in my life. And why? Not only was it just sounding out of key and it was just boring. And his opening act, who was Buddy Guy, was 10 times more talented than he was. Of course. He, he Before his set, he came out and whined at the audience not to take his picture. Because it, the, the show previously, I forget where it was, somebody was taking his picture. He told him to stop, and the guy kept taking pictures. So the guy ripped his iPhone out of, the, out of his hand and threw it backstage. <laughs> it caused, caused a, a little snuffle in, in the news. It was in the news. Uh, and so so he, said, he, he got up on stage for a half hour and told us why he didn't want people taking his picture. 
Oh, that's great. So you're getting lectured at a concert. Yeah, so I started taking this picture, and you know, his guitar <laughs> player shaking his head at me. So then my wife and I and the people we were with, we just turned our backs to him and sat there <laughs> on the lawn with our backs to him during the whole show. And but, everybody takes pictures. I mean, you spend your entire life trying to be somebody up on a stage and get your image out there and be a rock star, heaven forbid, and somebody's going to take your picture and you're going to whine about it like a little girl. It's crazy. I, I mean, no, Buddy Guy was amazing. Oh, yeah, He, he was only allowed to play for like a half hour because... Little prissy boy uh, Peter Frampton <laughs> had to come out there on on stage with his sequins pants and, and those little rivets on it. It just it was so stupid. And this was an intimate show where it was the Brit Festivals in Oregon, where you know there's nothing between you and the stage. It's just the right. grass and the stage. But yep. He had to have these big old metal barriers. Up there, like these six foot tall metal to protect things. them from you crazy yeah, fans. Yeah, to protect us from you know this this little tiny hippie festival kind of a thing. And it's just man, I'll yeah. never never again. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and by the way, Frampton was this gigantic star. Yeah. Frampton comes alive was this gigantic record, and he was this sex symbol, and he was in movies, and then he was nobody, which has got to be really painful. Hengel, your worst concert experience, Stop. or do you just love all of them? I, I was sitting there thinking, like in. Yeah, I pretty much did because I don't I don't commit unless I know you know it's going to be good stuff. But I would have to say that the opening band for um, GNR was Soundgarden, and it was beyond awful. Guns and Roses, GNR is yeah. Guns and Roses yeah. for you non Guns and Roses fans. GNR. <laughs> yeah. S. You didn't say Soundgarden. You should have said S. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Soundgarden. Right. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Mine was Johnny Cash, biggest disappointment in my life. Wow, I've seen him a couple of times, and he was just terrible. But then I saw him when he was good, and then that was one of the great nights of my life. And he's your favorite. He is, but what I'm saying is sometimes you go to see your yeah. favorite. Led Zeppelin, I mean, I saw them in Madison Square Garden. It was terrible. It was in, incomprehensibly bad. And then I saw him again t- two or three years later, and it was incomprehensibly good. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan, incomprehensibly bad when he was on drugs. Then I saw him on the Instep tour just before that helicopter crashed and he died. Best show, one of the best shows I've ever seen. How about a show? How about like a, a group you didn't like, but then you saw them live and then you liked them instantly? Oh my goodness! Uh, there's a bunch of mine was Metallica. Like I couldn't stand Metallica, and then I went to a show. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Now um, I can't stand them anymore again. But a lot of the, such is life. Some of the country acts. That's what did it. Lone Star Cafe hooked me to George Jones. Uh-huh. It got me going. Uh, got me going on a bunch of people. And then the, the Pink Floyd. I never liked Pink Floyd till I saw him. Wow. wow. Yep. And Prince. I didn't like Prince at all till I saw <laughs> Prince. And Prince may have been the greatest showman I've ever seen in my life. Better oh. than James Brown. And I saw James Brown. And James Brown had nothing over Prince. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. What about what about you, you, you gentlemen over there? John, best show. <laughs> best show? Um, man, what we entered with. Neil Diamond. Just the energy in the, in the stadium. <laughs> the wise, wise but, man. I mean, that was... It was amazing. If the whole crowd together singing every song, I mean, it was amazing. Worst concert? Yeah. Pretty easy. Uh, I, it was Paul Simon and Bob Dylan together. Oh, wow. And Dylan was horrible. You couldn't even understand what he was saying. Paul Simon, on the other hand, good show, but yeah. they were playing together, and oh, it was amazing. That's rough. And uh, we're going to go out with some Neil Diamond, just for Jesse. <laughs> just Yay! for Jesse. And Alex, the you love Creed, we need to say no more. I will have to leave on that note. This is Leah Beeb. This is Our American Stories. Just goofing off here for a segment, just like you do so often in your life. More after these messages. Those horns sound like flatulence. <laughs>
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And regularly, we like to talk to Lenora Skenazy, who's the author of a book and blog, Free Range Kids, and a contributor to Reason.com. And her TV show, World's Worst Mom, airs on the Discovery Life channel. And we're fortunate that the head of this movement, and we hope that Free Range Kids is and will become an even bigger movement, uh, the freerangekids.com is where, by the way, you can find Lenore. And Lenore describes the movement as, quote, fighting the belief that our children are in constant danger from creeps, kidnapping, germs, grades, flashers, frustration, failure, baby snatchers, bugs, bullies, men, sleepovers, and or the perils of a non-organic grape. <laughs> and I just love that. Thanks for being here, Lenore. Oh, what a pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me on. You bet. What we want to do is regularly just drill down with a a single story. Um, And just so people know uh, how Lenora got the term, the world's worst mom, she allowed her nine-year-old to ride the subway alone. And this created mayhem in the New York media. And that's why she's doing what she's doing now, the reaction to the reaction. Talk about this story about uh, this 11-year-old Florida kid who was simply playing in his yard. Yeah, this was last year. Um, This 11-year-old came home from school, and normally his mother is there, or if she's not, his dad is there. Um, The mom is a teacher. She's 20 minutes away. At the most, he has a couple minutes waiting for her to come home. And actually, this is a mom who is so extremely protective of her child that for (laughs) kind of a weird reason, she never gave him a key to the house because she was worried that if, uh, this is what she told me, that if um, burglars entered the house and he was there alone, he would have very little chance of getting out alive, whereas if he was outside, he was never going to be trapped in the home with the burglars. All right, so she's already thinking ahead to how can she keep her son very safe. Maybe she's not making the same decision you or I would make, but it's clearly a mom who cares about her kid. Yep. But anyways, uh, on this particular day, um, he gets home and she is stuck in traffic, and her husband, who would normally be home um, quickly because he works nearby, was also on a call and couldn't get there. And so for 90 minutes, we're talking one hour and a half, and a boy who's 11 plays in his backyard. He picks up his basketball, you know, he shoots some hoops. Somebody sees him there, realizes, oh, my goodness, that's a boy. He is not going inside. There's nobody home. He's by himself. Calls the cops. The cops come to the house, they find the boy there, and then they wait for the parents, okay? Because clearly this is a boy who has been neglected, and neglect and abuse are sort of fused in their mind. And so when the parents finally get back, which is the hour and a half, they got there, they throw the parents into the cop car, they take them and the son over to the police station, they fingerprint the parents, they take their picture, they strip search them, they throw them in jail, and because now the parents are in jail, the boy must go with his younger brother, who was elsewhere at the time, into foster care because there is nobody at home because they, the cops are so worried about the children being neglected that they put both their parents in jail. <laughs> right? So now they are neglected, and the kids go off, and guess what? The kids are uh, in foster care for a month, for a month, because what the, what the cops said in this case is that 
this was a, a you know a poor 11 year old child who was kept behind a home with no food, no drinks, no shelter, and no bathroom, and somehow having to survive 90 minutes without any of these. Um, and, and actually, there were plenty of those because they had a hose and they had a, a shed, so they had food and they had water and shelter. They just they didn't have a bathroom. Oh boy. Um, because somehow that constituted such a um, an imposition, such a grave danger, that uh, the parents were criminals. And who makes that decision in the end? I mean, in the end, legally, Lenore, uh, yeah. is is there is there sort of a, 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 a some strict ordinance or are there are there rules? You know, I, I, I wish I could tell you this. It's such a, a mishmash because there are two different. Um, I guess, courts going on at once. One is criminal court. You know, is this a crime? And the crime generally is leaving a child in danger. You're not allowed to leave a child in danger, and different um, states have different ages. In um, But, you know, for what age you are generally allowed to leave a kid alone. In Maryland, it's eight, and in Illinois, it's a bizarre 14 14 years old. Um, but the point is that you're allowed to leave them uh, unless they're in danger, and, and that becomes a question of, well, who determines what's dangerous? To me, a kid in his own yard might be in danger of being um, bored, <laughs> you know, might be in danger of being hot. It was in Florida, but in danger of what else? Nothing nothing that, to my mind, rises to the, the real definition of danger, which is putting them in you know, uh, danger of life or limb. I mean, there's just no danger there. And, in fact, if he felt bad, if he needed help, he's, he's a sentient human being. He can knock on a neighbor's door if he felt like he was, you know, desperately needed a bathroom or was going to faint from hunger. I mean, you know, we're not talking about uh, leaving a worm in the backyard. We're right. talking about leaving a person. Um, but then there's the parallel um, justice system of Child Protective Services, and in a way it's more scary with them because they don't have to um, have a regular jury trial uh, to determine if somebody is guilty or not. If somebody from Child Protective Services says this was a real danger judge and we have to make sure that the child is safe, I think the judge can just listen to that. Uh, I wish I knew more about exactly how... Um, how the systems work, and sometimes they overlap. Uh, but I can tell you that they are both um, allowed to interfere with normal, everyday parenting decisions, and they seem to be doing it in a way um, that I don't recall either Child Protective Services or the cops doing when I was a kid when my mom let me play outside. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we would have all been locked up in, in my generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went out. I mean, we were free-range kids, and everybody was a free-range kid. Right. In, in the in the early seventies, <laughs> no, it, yeah. it's so true. And, and Cindy and Fred, who are the names of the parents here, I wanted to just read something from you because you you got and heard about the case from Cindy, and this was the email, and this was her explanation mm-hmm. to you. The authorities claim he had no access to water or shelter. We have an open shed in the backyard and two working sinks and two hoses. They said he had no food. He ate his snacks already. He had no bathroom, but the responding officer found our yard good enough for him to relieve himself while our son sat in a police car alone. Yeah, pretty gross. I know, it's truly gross. Now, in in his own yard in a state, Florida, that has no minimum age for children to be alone. I think it's this protective services space, Lenore, that's so scary to people. Because in the end, the presumption of innocence and guilt 
you know, at least in the criminal law, we're innocent until proven guilty. There's a grand jury trial. There's a warrant. There's probable cause. There are all these things to protect actual criminals. It's in our Constitution. But once you get to the administrative state, we're guilty until we can prove that we're innocent. Everything right. shifts. Right. Um, that's why one of the things I'm trying to do lately is to get uh, towns, cities, uh, states, eventually the federal government to pass what I call the Free Range Kids Bill of Rights, which maybe I've talked to you before about, which, um, which shifts everything back to the way I think it should be, which is this presumption of innocence. So the Free Range Kids Bill of Rights is simple. It's one sentence long. <laughs> it says, children have the right to some unsupervised time, and we have the right to give it to them without getting arrested. The problem in this situation seems to be that simply because the kid was unsupervised, suddenly he's considered in danger, um, even though there's no evidence of actual danger. And if he is in danger, that means that the parents are negligent, because why would they put their child in danger? So we have to stop criminalizing the idea that any time a child is unsupervised, automatically parents are bad and the child is in danger. And so... Um, if we simply started from what you're talking about, which is the, you know, innocent until proven guilty, it's like, let's assume that parents think that kids can handle themselves walking to school, playing in the yard, waiting in the car for a couple minutes while they run in to get the pizza. Let's assume that uh, our job as onlookers and then even as, as police and as child protective service workers is to help the family. If we think the kid is in danger, we ask, are you okay, kid? Yes, I'm fine. We don't automatically assume that, oh, yay, it's like a Pokemon. Look, I caught one. Right. This one is un, you know, unsupervised. That means that the parents are bad. That means that automatically I get to throw them in jail and take away their kids. That's not the kind of town I want to live in. I want to live in a town where if the police see my child and they're worried about him, they help him as opposed to immediately throwing me in jail, which is not helping anybody. And also is is bizarre. I mean, it's based on this assumption that simply by walking along the street or playing in my yard, I am in danger as a child. That's that's not true. We're and 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 even in terms of crime, crime is down. We're at a 50-year crime low now. So if your parents let you play outside, ride your bike to the library, there's no reason that you should think that today's kids are more in danger. They're they're less in danger. That is so true. And again, we're talking with Lenora Skenazy free range kids and she's an author and well free range kids is is what we love talking about and we're going to continue to she's also a contributor to reason.com and her tv show world's worst mom airs on the discovery life channel lenora thanks as always for joining us my pleasure you bet and this is lee habib free range kids more after these messages This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Beginning Again series. Stories of folks beginning again in their lives and from all types of things. A divorce, a job loss, a retirement, the loss of a loved one, a disease, a cancer. And we want to hear your Beginning Again stories. Give us a call at 844-627-8255. And Beginning Again is hosted by Beverly Willette, a former New York City attorney who is now a writer. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post, among others. And she's had her own beginning again story after her husband pursued an office romance and left her family.
a story you can listen to in the Beginning Again topic section on our website, ouramericannetwork.org. And this week, Beverly brings us the Beginning Again story of Thomas Cliff. You became a practicing lawyer in 1971, so you had been practicing law for about 40 years at the top of your game, graduating from Harvard Law School, um, and your job is eliminated. Mm-hmm. Yep. It probably didn't resonate as much as it might have because it was happening to so many other people I knew. All I mean, I live in the Detroit area. The Detroit area was hit harder than almost any other place in the country in those days. I suppose if my job had just been eliminated, but everybody else was prospering, I might have felt more targeted. But in that setting, I probably didn't. I had not certainly had not planned on retiring in 64. My thought was to be able to work to, for maybe three more years. And anyway, my wife had, at that point, been out of work for a year and a half. So having us both not working was certainly not part of the plan. You know, I was fortunate that I was able to step back and talk to some people who had very insightful help. And you, and you said that one of your friends you know, said to you, have you ever thought about being a psychotherapist? That was amazing. It was the most, one of the most amazing moments of my life. He's a lawyer, and he's very successful. He's with a pretty big firm here in Detroit. And I got to know him at an athletic club that we belong to. And I, sometimes after working out, we'd just get together and have breakfast. We had a lot in common. Suddenly, he was inspired to somehow to ask this out-of-the-box question. He's not a psychologist. He, I'm not a psychologist. Where on earth did he suddenly say, did you ever think about this? And we didn't talk about it, we didn't talk about it again. But it took me, started me down a completely different path of looking at what I've been doing successfully for the last 30 years or so and evaluating it in a different sense. From, so it's not just sales. It's not just um, account management. It's relationships. I'm not enjoying this success just because of my affiliation with this company. I'm enjoying this success because I really do enjoy people. I really do like to get to know people and hear them talk. And I had had personal experience in therapy, and I knew the value of it. So I started thinking about, well, I, maybe I could do that, but I'm, how would I get from here to there? And that led me to look into degree programs and, and different schools and consult with uh, people who were in the field uh, and sort of educate myself very fast. Uh, and then applied, then I applied to graduate school and was accepted, and I was off and running. Did your wife think you were crazy when you came home and said, I think I'm going to become a therapist and go back to school first? <laughs> no, no. That took some hard swallowing on her part. <laughs> because it would have been, you know, we would have been way ahead financially if I'd done something else. What was it like to be back in the classroom with uh, I probably, I don't know, 18, 20-year-olds? <laughs> uh, they were. I, mean, I was in every room for, for four semesters. I was the oldest one in the room. But I liked it. I really enjoyed it. I had very good teachers, and there were a lot of bright students, and it was interesting material, and I loved the reading. And it was great. So let me go back to a period of transition. You, you also mentioned that you were a person of faith. And yes. I, I just wondered about your faith tradition and mm-hmm. uh, how that helped you and, and what role that played. Mm-hmm. I'm a lifelong Roman Catholic and a practicing Catholic, and so is my wife. And I've cultivated my faith. I haven't taken, really taken it for granted. And I've been able, to, again, to know wonderful people who have great insights and are just inspiring. 
So I was able to see this as something other than a disaster. I was able to see it as something in which I would have to trust. I didn't know where this was going. I didn't know if I'd be able to get a job at my age. I didn't know how any of this was going to work out, but it seemed like a good thing. And reflecting on it and, and praying on it and then trusting uh, was pretty much all I could do. And it, it, I think that was the correct thing. You know, it is interesting because I, I too, when I went through through my difficulties, had had a, a, you know, a background of faith and experiences that when I reflected on the other end, when I sort of come through it and, and rebuilt my life, realized mm-hmm. how thankful I was, how grateful I was that I'd had mm-hmm. that to rely mm-hmm. on and wondering where I would have been without it. Oh, and what you just said, grateful, I, I believe in, in, in my practice, I don't say this to, to clients because it's often would be hard for people to hear when they're suffering emotional crises or terrible loss. But I do believe that a sense of gratitude for not for not only for the things that uh, that were good, but the things that would have been terrible that didn't happen. A sense of gratitude is is very valuable and is very calming and uh, and helps with peace of mind. What kind of uh, people do you work with now in your practice? Adults, people who are dealing with loss or grieving, who are um, at a point where. I think for many people, losses and trauma from earlier times is pretty pretty effectively covered up. As people get in their 50s and 60s, sometimes it seems that negative things that, were, that affected one so much as a kid that have been suppressed for a long time start to creep out. So people experiencing, uh, you know, a dissatisfaction with life, an unhappiness, a chronic sadness that they that, that seems to come from nowhere, and looking at where does that come from, and how does that how does that come to be, and you know how can I you know how can I fix it or how can I live with it? And how do you counsel your clients not to be bitter, or how do you help them work through any bitterness that they might have? Well, I certainly don't tell them not to be bitter because I think okay. that's a, a valid, that's a very valid and personally compelling uh, response to being treated badly. Um, but over time, people may start to see that that it, what ha- that bad thing that happened is one aspect of my life. But there are other aspects of my life that I now see or my life is maybe now headed in a different direction or I'm beginning to recover. So the bitterness that was overwhelming uh, starts to become less overwhelming. I don't, the last thing I would tell people is, oh, well, you should not feel so bad about that and you should feel like this. Right. Uh, No, no, no. You you really always start with where people are. Well, there's, there's grieving. There's a grieving exactly. process too, which which has to be honored, and I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure, you know, that we we honor that enough in our society and allow people to have a period of grieving after oh. all kinds of, of losses. Sure. Well, uh, even things that we count on and plan for, and it happened like retirement. Okay, the day after retirement, you don't have the office to go to anymore. You don't have the people that became your sort of friends that you worked with for years. You don't have that setting. You don't have that identity as I'm a banker. You don't have any of those things. So um, grief is a word that isn't commonly used, but it sure makes sense to me. 
is there one last thing that you would like to say to anyone who who is starting over and beginning again in their life, especially after a job loss, uh, mm-hmm. loss well, you know, in their 60s think, perhaps or 50s or whenever? Yeah, I, I think that, that one word, uh, courage, is, okay. um, is a big help because if you lose your nerve, let's say, then you really are stuck. You really are at the mercy of whatever comes along. But if you can find, if one can find within oneself the courage to believe that uh, this is temporary and I'm going to, this, I'm going to make this work, um, that, you know, that, that's a help. And there you have it. Great work by Beverly. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Beverly to talk about Thomas and to talk about, well, what we always talk about, beginning again. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to our Beginning Again series. And joining us is Beverly Willette, here in our studios, uh, to talk about the story you just heard and some of the aspects of it. I know I have some questions about Thomas's experience. Beverly, thanks for joining us. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. You bet. You know, as I listened to that, a couple of things struck me. And, and the first is, and I think I probably speak for the listeners, um, that Thomas is a guy who could, it seems, could control his emotions. And, and, and I don't think that folks might have felt quite what they might have felt themselves if something like this happened. And he talked about being a, a, a man of faith. Uh, talk about how that might have helped him. He, he talked a little bit about it, how that might have helped him deal with this pain in ways that people who are not close in faith uh, might otherwise not understand. Well, I mean, I can talk from my own personal uh, experience with faith, and I think sometimes, you know, you, you don't you don't know how that can come to play later in life. That you have something that winds up being a blessing later on that maybe you sort of take for granted, but it's there to sort of catch you in that moment that that's that most difficult moment that you never imagine is going to happen. He thought he was going to be a lawyer for the rest of his life. He had a few more years that he needed to put in uh, until he got to the point of retirement to have the money to retire. I uh, thought his wife was going to go back to work, and then all of a sudden he one day was eliminated. And that, and that was his word, actually, when I had a conversation, an earlier conversation with him. He said, I was eliminated. That's a very strong thing to have happen to yep. you and to feel that you are eliminated. So I think having had that faith, that background, sort of that safety net that you that you didn't even know you needed to have, or um, were aware at the time that that would be what you would need, I think that kind of caught him in that in that that net to, to sort of protect, give him some protection at the moment that that occurred, that very difficult yeah, thing I think occurred in his life. I think that's right. I also think that when you have that spiritual dimension and it's strong, whatever it might be, whatever your faith might be. Um, that having that spiritual dimension means that there's more to him than his work. Um, and if he deeply believes that, then he's still got these other dimensions and aspects of his life, his whole life, in other words, because his life wasn't his work, 
Um, his life wasn't eliminated. His job was. Exactly. And it's a job, but in the end, it, what was interesting about what he loved about this job, you know, what a lot of lawyers like is the money. What a lot of lawyers work is the legal machinations and the thinking and the preparing for the briefs. And we all have known lawyers. I'm a recovering one. You are. Um, they're, they're an interesting breed. Uh, but he talked about the relationships is what he loved about the, the job. And that, I would bet, comes from his faith as well. Because, you know, people of faith are always, it's always, if they're really of faith, uh, are thinking about the relationships they form. And that's more important than anything. Because that's what, well, his God teaches him. I mean, I think that's right. I'm not necessarily um, sure that he would have gone there initially. I think for him, this moment when he had this friend who said, have you thought about becoming a psychotherapist? That really kind of caught him short. We Mm -hmm. don't really know where. I mean, even if you're a person of faith, you can go down to a very, very deep pit at times. Absolutely. And I certainly know that uh, I went into a very deep pit, and I've known other people who are very strong people of faith, you can still go down into that well. You bet. And I think this this friend of his who said, have you thought about this? In a way, I think that kind of jarred his thinking and sent his thinking in a completely different direction that he may not have taken. He may have gone further down into that well because his wife was unemployed at the time and she'd been out of work for a year and a half. So we don't know where that would have, have happened if this other person hadn't come in and said, have you thought about that? And he said, I don't know where that came from. I, that, that question that he asked, have you thought about becoming a psychotherapist? So I think that kind of jarred something loose in his own brain for him to realize, wow, it wasn't about being a lawyer. It was about relationships. And right. that took him in a, on a different path, kind yeah. of, you know, a different kind of recovery path where he started being proactive about thinking about solutions. Yeah, I can do this. I think he was also saying to himself, I can do this. Yes. And maybe maybe this actually will be more interesting than my last career. I mean, it, it almost sensed, it sounded to me like he was excited about, in the end, an opportunity afforded him that might not have been otherwise afforded him. Well, that's true. And he carries this business card around with him. It's psychotherapist on one side, and on the other side of the business card is his favorite quote. He, he loves quotes. He's got quotes all over the place. And it's, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. That's a Carl Jung quote. And I think that he thinks now, well, I wasn't really meant to be a lawyer. That was just part of the path that brought me to this place of becoming a psychotherapist so that I can help people now who are in the same circumstance I was five years ago. Yep. And, and, and the word privilege is pretty interesting word. So in the end, looking back, and I also found it interesting that, you know, recounting the pain. And I think some, again, I'm, I'm just speaking for folks listening. Um, he was almost recounting his pain in a, in a way that it seemed like he didn't experience much. And I think looking back, because this has afforded him this whole new opportunity in life, um, he's looking back and going, thank goodness that happened. Right. Like what a kick that I get to do this yeah. now. And I never would have done that. <laughs> I never would have chosen this myself, that this guy, I got a, a circumstance befell me and, and, and opportunity at the same time. Did By the way, we talk a lot here on this show about entrepreneurs and we talk about people who do startups and uh, we'll be playing a little something. Uh, Peter Guber, who's one of the great 
businessmen of our time, also a great filmmaker, led a studio, runs Mandalay Entertainment now, and he's written a book about this and about story and about failure, and that failure is a fundamental part of story, and that tragedy is a fundamental part of story. But great, the, the great business people that he's learned always see opportunity in failure and don't take failure as personally as people who are ne- not necessarily cut out to be entrepreneurs. In other words, when the failure comes, they don't, they, they're mining through it to see, well, what's the market signaling? What can I learn from this? Where can I go? That new opportunity is right around the edge. This failure is necessary to my success as a businessman. In fact, I get a little scared when I'm not. That's a very unique character that can go through life like that. But I think in, in large measure what we were listening to is a guy who got handed a new opportunity in his life. Yes, and he said also to me, he said, however, we're usually programmed to think that we need to do the same thing so that whenever we have a failure or a loss, we need to replace it with whatever we've lost. So we seem to think, well, I've lost this job, so I need to go out and get this kind of a job. Or my marriage has fallen apart, I need to go and find someone immediately. And he said, that's how we've become in society a lot, where we think that way. So we don't take that failure. We think that failure is the worst thing in the world, and we've got to go and replace it with the same thing. And I think he was, he said initially that he was looking for law jobs too. I mean, that's, we're programmed to do that. You know, he went to no, Harvard. He's a lawyer. He's, he's a lawyer. lawyer. He's yeah. put it, you know, that's where he's made his money. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't, what are you going to give up a, a Harvard law degree to go do, to become a psychotherapist? You know, it's crazy thinking, um, at least to a lot of people. You know, why would I give up all of those years and all of that that I had? I've got to go find another job exactly like this. And this friend of his said, well, how about this? And that just sort of, I think, turned the corner for him. Well, I also think, and I think well, as we do any of these stories, some people, I would bet, more willingly jump into their new life with a sense of excitement and others get dragged right. into their new life. And ultimately they get there, <laughs> but one just, well, we, we, hey, look, we travel with certain people. And there, you know, I was at the airport the other day and I, we, I was stuck there for four hours. And there's that kind of person who whines and complains and you just, you just want to hit them over the head and get them out. And you get the other kind of person who you just, you meet somebody, you have a great conversation, you go get a cup of coffee and you go, wow, thank goodness I was grounded. I just met those two great people. And, and so how we deal with adversity in life Oh, everybody's different. Uh, final thoughts about about uh, about Thomas. What your real takeaway might have been uh, from from his life. What you what you what you walked away from after having interviewed him. Um, I just was very uplifted. I mean, I just think that it that it really helps for people to start to start thinking about uh, loss in a different kind of way. And I, I certainly was one of those people that you just described as you just want to hit them over the head. You know, I'm sure some of my friends just, oh, my God. I got to the point where I think I started not liking to hear myself whine. And mm-hmm. I think that was a, a turning a corner for me, too. Yeah. Yeah, shut up me. Shut up me. <laughs> yeah, shut up me. Well, Beverly, we really appreciate what you're doing here with us and uh, look forward to your next work. Thanks, for, thanks again for coming. Thank you. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Beginning again is the subject, Beverly Watt, who you've seen her writing in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others. Uh, but she'll be a regular contributor here on Our American Network because all through our lives, I mean, you can have a beginning again when you're 12. Something epic can happen in your life. 
You know, my favorite movie, Ordinary People. Uh, you ever seen it with Robert Red- Robert Redford directed, Mary Tyler Moore and, and Donald Sutherland. You know, one brother loses another brother in an ocean accident. Life started all over again for that family. And they had to begin again. And one could and one couldn't. And that's the story of our lives. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and hit beginning again in the topic section and catch all of our work there. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Bring Small Businesses Back series, brought to us by the Job Creators Network. And today we're talking to an entrepreneur, a job creator, Stephen Bianco, owner of College Hunks Hauling Junk and Moving Franchises in New Jersey, Tennessee, Ohio, and Florida. Steve, we've had a lot of successful job creators on our show, and I've got to tell you, most of them did not go in with a textbook education. They didn't go straight down the line out of college and do what they studied. Uh, it was sort of a serendipity in, in large measure, Stephen, and just the desire to be their own boss. Tell us about your story and how you became an entrepreneur. What was your first taste of entrepreneurship? Well, thank you, Lee. Thanks for having me on the show today, first and foremost. Um, hello, everybody. You know, my first instinct, I, I happen to have the blessing of, of seeing a father um, who was an immigrant from Germany become an entrepreneur, a pharmacist by trade, uh, who opened up uh, pharmacies and, and struggled to do that in the state of New Jersey for years. And I, so I saw it firsthand and got the original bug. But my first real-life taste was when I was in college, and the nutrition industry had just begun. And I saw people, you know, trying to find ways to... Uh, find better uh, better ways to provide for their bodies or make their bodies healthier. And on my college campus, I was at Villanova University, and I actually threw my roommate out of the room, and I opened up a nutrition store in my room underneath my bed. And I put out signs uh, before the Internet age. I put out signs across campus and started attracting students to come to my room and buy supplementation, vitamins, things that they weren't provided at the vitamin store at that particular time. And that was my first feeling of being able to provide something that people did not have. And that became very exciting to me, that they were saying, hey, this helped me. Or, I never knew about this before. Or, I can't believe I can get this from you. Thank you very much. That was my first feeling. I knew what, why my father had fought so hard to start his own business because he was providing a great service for people, and that's what excited him, um, is that in the pharmacy world, he was able to provide a pharmaceutical store that 
people were able to walk in and ask him, can you please help me? My daughter's sick. I need your guidance. That's what drove him. And when people start coming in my room in college and saying, thank you, this has helped me, that was the bug. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think counterintuitively, Stephen, that people think that people enter the entrepreneurship pathway because they want the money. But I think it's so much more, more profound. And in fact, you look at the, the pay scales, and when people go into their own business, they actually sacrifice a lot. And they end up not making as much money, and very often not even out, out over a lifetime. It's so many other intangibles. And you just mentioned one of them. Tell me about your childhood, your, your, your preparation. Uh, was there anything in school that led you to believe you'd be doing this other than this experience, courses you took? And where did you grow up and under sort of what economic circumstances, too, as well, Stephen? You know, it's interesting. I had, I had one of the most interesting upbringings. And um, I have a book coming out um, called Declaring America's Religion. And it talks a lot about the, my, my upbringing and the gratefulness of the blessing of my upbringing. And I, I came from, uh, first and foremost, uh, my father uh, came from Germany. Uh, my mother was a, a poor woman from Georgia. You know, they met in some of the most interesting circumstances back in the 70s, a interracial couple in the 70s, um, before Love vs. Virginia, and formed an amazing bond that's gone over 40 years to this day. Uh, that, for and foremost, shaped the lives of my sister and I, of being people who, number one, accept people for who they are, for and foremost. And that was the most critical thing as a young person that my parents were able to teach us as being open and diverse and seeing people for truly who they are. Going through that, when I went to high school, I actually, you know, my parents worked very hard and struggled to put me into a wonderful high school in the state of New Jersey. And I, I was able to go to an all-boys school that was a very prominent type of school. And some amazing people, uh, presidential candidate Chris Christie's children go there. Um, and it's one of those amazing places for boys to go to school. But that was actually my wake-up call for what I didn't want to do. I did not want to do the job that was just going down the line because this is what you're supposed to do coming out of this school. You're supposed to go to Wall Street and make millions of dollars. Yep. That was the thought, and that's where a lot of my great uh, classmates went, and God bless them. But it was my view at that point in time that I literally turned and ran the opposite direction because I just wanted to, I want to, I want to create a legacy. And I started a legacy while I was in school, and we actually retired my football jersey, not because of my athletic herrics, but because we started a trend, a legacy of brotherhood and bonding and growth, where we as a team brought everybody together and said, we're going to become state champions. And this is the number that's going to represent us making a pack and making all of us better and when all of us rise up together, we are going to win a state championship. And we did exactly that. Went undefeated, still to this day, the only undefeated team in our school's history in football, and we won a state championship. And it was because we lifted everybody up as a community. And that was that taste of, wait a minute, if I can get everybody on the bus, 
to use a Stephen Covey comment, if I can get everybody on the bus, wow, that is something that I can be proud of, and that's the direction I want to go. And I can do that by having my own business, starting a company, organizing a company, and doing something that I feel is right and collectively feel as a group that we believe in. And let's make that happen. And you heard it there, make things happen. That's what so many entrepreneurs try to do. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Stephen directly and from so many of our small business owners across this country about the impediments to them hiring more people, expanding and growing their businesses, which is what almost every small business owner I know wants to do. And we'll learn about the impediments they face and the obstacles they face after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's our Bring Small Businesses Back series that we're doing each week in conjunction with our partner and sponsor, Job Creators Network. And we've been talking to Stephen Bianco, owner of College Hunks, Hauling Junk, and Moving Franchises in New Jersey, Tennessee, Ohio, and Florida. And you know, Stephen, so many people start off, well, with a little help. Some have some family that have money. And then there are lots of people who start with absolutely nothing. But my goodness, there's a lot of folks in between. Tell us your story and how you started as an entrepreneur. I don't have the story of coming from nothing and building up from nothing. I don't have that story. Right. I'm very, my father did that. He did that. He has that story. And he worked extremely hard. My mother worked extremely hard to provide that for my sister and I to then step on, but then realize, don't step over. Yep. Don't step over this. Step on this to continue doing what's right for the growth of other people. You know, by the way, Stephen, people do not associate entrepreneurs and capitalists talking like this. But in the end, this is actually the engine. And these are the type of people who actually do go their own way. And I think that in large measure, Stephen, probably the seminal event of, of your life was actually what you said. An interracial couple in the 70s in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. People always think of the South as segregated. I live in the South now. It's the North that's very segregated and still is. And so what was your experience and how do you think that that experience in your life formulated so much of your character today, even as an entrepreneur? The, I'm, Lee, thank you. Thank you for asking that question, because my answer, I think, is going to be completely opposite what people would think. I grew up in northwest New Jersey, and at that time, during the late 70s, early 80s, that was where nobody was. So I grew up, as I say, because this is part of my culture of who I am, I grew up in redneck culture at right. that time. Yep. That's how I grew up. And guess what? I had not a single issue, and this is why, because it wasn't about my difference or being the same. It was about, this is who I am. I am a boy from Sussex, Warren County, the western 
mountain area, farm area of New Jersey. Yep. This is who I am. This is my culture. And I did exactly the same things that everybody else did. I was just a kid in that culture. At that particular time, it was Metallica, Quiet Riot, uh, uh, Queensryche, Led Zeppelin, Twisted Sister. And I walked around in jeans with white Reebok sneakers with the tongue hanging out and a black concert t-shirt. <laughs> and I tried my hardest to grow a rat tail at the back of my head, but because my hair is a little bit different and curly, it didn't really work out for me. Yeah, but yeah. I tried. And guess what? Thank goodness. Had, thank goodness. Thank goodness. And my mother made me cut it as well. But, but that's how I grew up. And that experience in that, of coming from a household, and this is where the parental piece came in, yep. that it wasn't like, no, Stephen, you are white. Or no, Stephen, you are black. It's no, Stephen, you are American. And you are a Sussex County boy. That's it. Yep. And that provided, and then they showed us, my sister and I, multiple cultures, not just a black culture or not just a white culture or right. a German culture. My, and a lot of that, I owe that to my father. The one thing my father did that I'm so proud of to this day, here's someone that moved here from Germany. That man eliminated his German accent as quickly as he possibly could because he wanted to be American. Yep. And that's who he was. And from that point on, like, that's what, that's what we believed in. We were, we were just American children. And we grew up in a, in, 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 in a country sort of setting. Um, and to this day, I had a multitude of relationships and friends from all different types of backgrounds. And my parents provided that to us. And, and that's sort of the biggest gift um, and the biggest misperception that a lot of people feel because we angle ourselves or we assume that we have to associate with a certain geographical or demographic. We assume that we have to be that particular way. No, yep. you're, the, you're, you're who you are, but where you grow up in. I don't care what religion, what color, what race you are, what economic background. It's where that culture, and we have many different styles of culture in our country. We all, we all should be believing in the same American religion, as I like to call it. We all should have that. But we have all different sects of it based upon our culture. Yep. And if I'm from North, northwest New Jersey, I'm a heck of a lot different in culture than if I'm from Bergen County across the Hudson River from New York City. That's right. A totally different cultural approach. I still believe in strong American values. But you know what? I wear a jeans, T-shirt, and a cowboy boots. That's right. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in Bergen County, and Warren County was the sticks. And that's where country music was playing. And we, we always used to say Sullivan County, New York, or Warren County, New Jersey, might as well be Georgia, except with mm -hmm. different accents, because it was. And people have this misperception about this great country as if there aren't rural areas everywhere, suburban areas everywhere. And those suburban areas, no matter where they are, have more in common together than the rural areas. But one thing they used to always have in common, Stephen, all of this tapestry of America, is I'm half Lebanese, I'm half Italian. My parents refused to let me speak Italian or Arabic in the household. We were Americans, period. We couldn't talk about, we'd have maybe one day where we would celebrate, what well, one day a year we'd celebrate our Italian heritage. We didn't ignore it. But let me tell you, America, 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 it was always the American creed, Stephen. And part of that has to do with, you know, hard work, personal responsibility. And I think this leads straight into entrepreneurship. And the other thing is building that team that you talked about. So let's talk about 
that that first real professional experience. You're out of college. You're, you're, you're pursuing a bunch of different kinds of careers. Talk about the different paths you took, Stephen, because I actually believe as Americans are listening to this, they're going to get a better understanding. We do this every week. We talk to various entrepreneurs from every walk of life, and all the stories are different. And, but the end game is the same, and it's that, that desire to start something for yourself. But talk about that road you took, Stephen. Well, I came out of school, and, um, and, and uh, after my collegiate time, I went to the United States Air Force Academy, and then I went to Villanova University, um, two great, wonderful uh, institutions. And I became a state trooper in the state of New Jersey. And that was my kickoff of... Number first and foremost, it was, I want to help. And it's funny, people always say, well, you know, why did you become a state trooper? No, 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 I really did want to help people. Like, I really did. Like, I couldn't stand writing tickets. It was the worst thing I could possibly imagine, and I fought it. And I I fought it verbally as a young rookie. I fought it. I couldn't stand it. Now, someone was really doing something wrong to protect the public, sure, you go out there and do what you're supposed to do. But I couldn't stand going out there and just saying, I have to write tickets. I really wanted to provide and rush to an accident and help somebody. Right. And I learned so much being a state trooper. Now, during that time, that was my first opportunity to have some good, some good strong income, and I sacrificed and saved my money. Um, I put away everything I had. I lived at home when everyone else said, oh, you should move out. You should move out. You've got a good job as a state trooper. I said, no, I'm going to stay home, and it is what it is. It, it, it hurt my dating life a little bit, yep. but it, it was what it was. <laughs> but I looked at it and I said, you know what? I want to put some money away. I'm making a good income here as a state trooper. Let me still live in my old room, and let me pack some money away. And that's exactly what I did. I packed some money away, and within a year and a half, I started going out there and I started using some of the athletic talent that I had previously, you know, had and and, and knew about. And I was going to the tracks and I was working out and I was running around the tracks and I would see a father and a daughter or a mother and a son out there on the track running and trying to make themselves better for sports. And I'd walk up to them and say, hey, by the way, if you move your arms a little bit here, move your arms a little bit there, you know, it can help make you faster. And I'd get some good responses, and people would say, hey, can you help me do this? And by the time you knew it, I had a couple people that I was going to the track and meeting up unofficially and just letting them work out with me. And I said, wait a minute here. All these people are asking me at this little local track in New Jersey, when I lived in New Jersey at the time, they're all asking me, this is a small rural area. What if there must be a lot of kids who need this help? And I saw an opportunity. And let's hold it right there, Stephen. Hold that thought. He saw an opportunity. I would submit you would ask almost every entrepreneur or job creator, and that's what they tell you. One day they saw an opportunity. They saw something in the market, some problem that needed to be solved. When we come back, more with Stephen Bianco as a part of our Bring Small Businesses Back series, brought to us, as always, by the Job Creators Network. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and now we continue our conversation with Stephen Bianco. And when we left off, he had seen an opportunity, and he had taken some action. And let's rejoin our conversation. Then I went back to my high school, and I just started training athletes at my high school. And the high school let me use their tennis courts. Kept saving my money as a state trooper. And finally, I said, I remembered my time at the Air Force Academy. They had one of the most beautiful athletic facilities for training. And I said, what if I'm able to mirror that and turn it into a smaller version of what the Air Force Academy had? It had AstroTurf infield. It had weights set up on one side. It had free, free weights on one side. It had machines on the other side. And if you know the training world, it was, it was, it was very well organized to have a level of a periodization of training um, with, 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 with micro sections and, uh, of, of training protocol. And um, it was a great way to, to, to cross-train. It was cross-fitting before cross-fit was a twinkle in somebody's eye. So I set out to say, if I shrink that down, I can provide for these young kids. And you know what? I think more kids will have opportunities to perform better while they're young in high school. And you know what? And maybe a kid can get into a school that they may not have gotten into because they've, they've, they've increased their athletic ability a little bit. So I opened up a 5,000-square-foot facility in New Jersey. I had saved you know, like $25,000, $30,000, and I opened up the small facility. I laid down AstroTurf. I bought free weights on sale from health clubs that were closing down, and I started advertising. I was advertising myself. I had some T-shirts made up, put some T-shirts on some young athletes, <laughs> yep. and uh, people started asking. And where it really took off, and it goes back to the original question, where it really took off was the fact that we built a team, and not a team of employees. We built a team of the customers and it became something that these young individuals were proud of. They wore their T-shirts with pride. And they were improving not just in sport, but they were improving in life. The parents' comments would come back and say, you know, I really don't care about how he performs on the soccer field, but I tell you what, our son is now listening to us. Mm -hmm. He's actually coming home and doing his homework. Yep. How is this all happening? And I just said, he's motivated. He's motivated to be great, and it has nothing to do with me, and I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, it actually, you, you, you worked on it, but it has to do with the environment he is now in. He's in an environment where success breeds success, and he's seeing his peers working hard, and now he wants to do the same. Yep. We've instilled it in him, and you've built a foundation, but now he has seen the light. And he wants it for himself. And that's the community we started to build in the company. And it started growing and growing and growing. Not from advertising, not from what I was. I was actually being ridiculed on my style of training because the academic pundits thought it was crazy and it had no substance to it. And I kept turning and saying, it's not about the athletic training substance. It doesn't matter if a 12-year-old boy follows a certain protocol. It's not about that. That's not why he's getting better. He's getting better because he's confident in himself. He believes in himself. We're building his self-esteem. That's what this company is about, not the X's and O's about how to have a training protocol. Yep. 
this kid is improving because we provided something great in their life. And that was that aha business moment where, wait a minute, if I can provide an opportunity for people to thrive, that's a business that's needed. And that's going to have longevity. That's going to have legs. That's going to build a legacy. And that was that first experience. That's great. Um, you know, Vernon I'll, Hill, who built Commerce Bank into a multi-billion dollar enterprise, started his first bank with his wife, and they had an edict on the team, and it's, let's create fans, not customers. And everything they did from then on was about empowering employees to create a servant-based culture so that the, the folks would be fans. The next thing you know, this, this bank was actually open, Steve, and imagine this, when customers were free. So at 7 right in the morning, the bank was open. At 5, the bank was open. They allowed dogs in because people were tying their dogs outside. They said, well, let's bring the dogs in. Change, they not only let people bring the change in, you know those big machines that take a 10% vigorish at the, at the supermarket? He put them in for free. The kids could count their change for free, and they could make a deposit. And by the way, those kids ended up becoming lifelong customers, and they also did seminars on how to create wealth, starting with investing at like the age of 8. And the next thing you know, he has this gigantic bank. So talk about now the step up from this, from what you are now, this 42 holdings from where you were then. What was the next step from gym owner and uh, let's just say personal self-esteem guru, because I, I think that that's what you were doing through physical fitness. I think you were using physical fitness as a proxy for something else. And that's, I think, what the Marine Corps does. I think that's what Paris Island is really all about. It's not about getting the guys fit. It's about shaping their character, putting expectations really high, and letting everybody know, hey, we're in this together, and we can do a lot more than you think. We are better than we think. Not many people tell that to people these days, um, but I think actually the best entrepreneurs do. Talk about what led you from this early initial experience to what you have today, Stephen. Well, you said it right, and that's what entrepreneurs have to do. That's what business owners have to do. That is your duty. Your duty as a business owner, as a business leader, is exactly that. Be a leader, and you're looking out for the lives of the people that are placed around you. The people are placed around you for a particular reason. When you really start dialing in and thinking about that, it's become so obvious as to what the point of me doing this is. From the fitness world, I knew I needed to make a change. There was a change in the, this was a business decision. There was a change in the fitness industry itself. Everything had grown in a different direction. CrossFit was coming around, different health clubs. The athletic model was, was changing drastically. There was, one, there was ones popping up in every corner, and it was time for me to take that into a different direction. I was also had started a family, and uh, my children were very young, and uh, the hours had to be changed, and um, I needed to make a move there. And I wanted to keep going in the business of growing people. And I found an opportunity in the franchise world, and I've always believed in the franchise world as being such a powerful tool in our American society because it allows people just like me to take something they believe in, and that's growing people, and that's my strongest belief, is finding the diamond in the rough and giving an opportunity for them to reach their God-given potential. 
I believe in the franchising world provides that for that entrepreneur. The entrepreneur doesn't have to be the MBA from Stanford. Yep. That's not an entrepreneur. That's a business analyst, and they're needed, and we right. need them dra- desperately. But that's not the definition of what's needed in an entrepreneur or a business leader. So the American franchise industry has provided the opportunity for people who believe in their community, in a particular sector of a market, in a particular business model, and in people to open up a business of their own and provide that opportunity. And I found that in a company called College Hunks Hauling Junk. And although the name was cute and funky and it had some great upstart um, uh, media attention, I saw it as something different. We're going to hold that thought, Stephen, and when we come back on the backside, more from our Bring Small Businesses Back series and from Stephen Bianco. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now we rejoin our conversation with entrepreneur and job creator, Stephen Bianco. I said, here's an opportunity, and this company, College Hunks Hauling Junk. And I said, this is a way that I can help provide opportunities for college individuals who have graduated or ones who may not even have gone the college route and open some doors that have never been opened for them and shock the living daylights out of customers to provide something for them that they assumed they were not getting. They were assuming they were going to get uh, a couple of guys come work on their house and take out garbage and their, 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 their stereotypical individual who was hauling garbage or the stereotypical mover. Well, I want to shock the daylights out of you. I want to provide an opportunity for a young person who's driven, who wants something great, and I'm going to provide the opportunity and the tools, the vision, and the back-and-forth communication so that you can reach that potential that you want to reach. And let's go shock your family, let's shock your neighbors, and let's make yourself proud of who you are. And I saw that opportunity in that age demographic in this company, in this franchise. And it has is, it is, is enabled me to follow that belief of as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, it is your duty to provide and continue the educational life growth of the people within your company. Open them up to communication. Tell them what's happening in the world. You know, we do, we do a Job Creators Network E2E program that we've instituted in our roll call, which we have here at our offices, where we sit down and we educate our employees about life, 
about American history, about government, about taxation, about wealth management. We provide, and with the help of an E2E program, which is employer to employee, uh, we provide this information and knowledge to them so they can make better decisions in their life and better decisions for their family. And we become, as a business, an educational hub for them. Because if they're more educated in themselves, they feel better about themselves, they're going to provide a better service for the customer, and guess what? Capitalism 101, that equals more revenue, more growth. Well, and more profit. In the end, more profit. And, and, and in the end, we are, we, we are in the business of making a profit. And it's, this gets me down to now... Uh, some important some important points, and we're talking to Stephen Bianco, uh, an entrepreneur in the franchise business in the moving space. And franchising is well, it's twenty percent of our economy. Twenty uh, percent of all businesses you know out there are franchises, and you may not know it. And it's everything from the hotel industry. Large part of that is franchising, straight down to fast food restaurants. Most people know about that, but not Snap-on tools and not so many, the merry maids of this world. Most folks don't know that this is 20% of the American economy. And Stephen, uh, of late, uh, a small government organization that no one knows about or really has ever heard of, the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, decided in a, in a, in a sort of fiat, in a move, an unprecedented move, to start to go after the nature of the relationship between the franchisor, that would be, let's say, McDonald's corporate, and the franchisees, and those are all the guys who own the individual restaurants around this country. And they're trying to now say, the National Labor Relations Board, that all of the people who work for that franchisee, all of those employees, are now employees of the corporate parent, too. And by the way, I think the reason the NLRB is doing that is because it wants to figure out a way to unionize all of these workers. But it's ignoring the contracts that guys like you and tens of thousands of, of franchisees have with their franchisor. Talk about the threat this is to your business. And by the way, Congress didn't pass this. This is just some agency making up a law that it impacts And by the way, it doesn't matter what religion these franchisees are. It doesn't matter what political party they're from. The franchisees in this country have lost their minds over this. Talk about it, Stephen, and how it affects your life and your, more importantly, I think, in the end, your employees' life. Well, first and foremost, the NLRB um, is an organization that is sort sort of flies under the radar of unelected bureaucrats that are placed in there uh, in order to, for them to make decisions that they think are right. Our franchise industry has over 800, 825, 830,000 franchise businesses in our country. And the NLRB decided that, you know what, we're going to create a joint employer relationship between the franchisee and the franchisor. Let's completely eliminate 20 to 30% of our small businesses as we know it. And we're going to now place the risk of an independently owned franchise business, which is what you mentioned, Lee, 
people don't think about this, and I'll, I'll come back. People don't think about the McDonald's as an individually owned entity. That McDonald's is owned by somebody in your community a lot of times. Yep. That's somebody's mother. That's somebody's father. That's somebody's grandparent. That's somebody's family business. We look at it as corporate McDonald's, but that one that you go to, even though it's a monstrosity of, a, of, a, of, a, of an organization worldwide, that one that you go to is somebody's small business, and those are somebody's employees that work with them. And the NLRB wants to make it where that large corporation is now responsible for anything that goes on at the local level. Fair angle on that, like you said, the one area that they're missing when it comes to unionization is the unionization of the restaurant industry. And on all the thousands and thousands of individuals who work within the restaurant industry. And they want to unionize them in order to take dues and make their political stances and pay their political dues. Not caring about the effect of what it does to an American business. You take mine, for instance. I'm a franchisee. If the franchisor becomes responsible or is at risk for things that we do in our country or has to assume that in in, in our company and has, has to assume that risk, then they are, number one, going to increase prices of royalties in order to provide legal um, support for themselves. They're also not going to accept the applications of smaller individuals who was their first time at opening a business for themselves in their community. Yep. Because the risk is too high. Because now they have to worry about every single little thing that small business does and assume that risk. Well, if you're the franchisor, then you're not going to take on that risk, and it's going to turn into conglomerate ownership. You are going to have to have a large conglomerate in order to own or be accepted into a franchise family. It will completely eliminate the franchising model as we know it. And the biggest issue of that is that franchising is the first way into private business ownership for the majority of female and minority-owned businesses. That is the entry point into the private small business realm. Yeah, and that is, Stephen, because let's face it, when you start, when you go into partnership with a franchisor, the franchisor is providing the branding, the marketing, the delivery, and then your, your job is to execute on the vision to sell and to and employ people and meet payroll and motivate the employees. Why would a corporate parent want to be exposed to the trial lawyers and the unions, to, to the decisions of all these owners? They, they would just go, forget it, corporate might as well buy all these small businesses because it's not worth the exposure, just as you had said earlier. Uh, Stephen, I, I really appreciate you bringing this to light. Um, the Job Creators Network, uh, you're a member of and part of, and we are, they are uh, proud sponsors and partners of this, of this show. And thank you so much for uh, just giving us the time and giving the folks out there a, a, a bird's-eye view of all those people in the town that you know who are who own small businesses, who own a franchise. And by the way, drive down that block. I'm guaranteeing you 25% of those businesses are franchise businesses. But for all the small business owners out there uh, and for you speaking on their behalf, Stephen, I deeply appreciate you spending the time with us. Lee, I appreciate you for giving me this time. If, if, if anybody's out there and you believe in this, 
go to defendmainstreet.com and learn more about our campaign as small business owners to bring small businesses back to America. It is what built us. It's what our founding fathers built the beginnings when coming from England, built this country on all of us providing for each other in a local arena. And there are so many ways out there currently that people are, organizations are stripping that from us but then still crying that we need to employ people. Well, we employ people through small businesses. That's how we all get our start, and that's how the majority of us feed our families, is through small businesses. But not to mention, that's, those are the businesses you're walking down Main Street with, with your family, with your children, walking into the restaurant, enjoying a Friday evening together. You are going to a small business. This is a fight we have to fight. The overtaxation, the overregulation is destroying that American dream, that's what the American dream is. Well, Stephen, that's what our country's been built on. We, we have to fight this. We couldn't agree more, and we'll be spending a lot more time on the Bring Small Businesses Back tour, which will be going around the country in the fall. And we'll be following it. We uh, covered the Orlando event, and uh, defendmainstreet.com is the website, and small business is what we're here to defend always. And, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. You bet. God bless. That was Stephen Bianco, and he's a part of the Job Creators Network. And to learn more about small businesses, to join this fight for the freedom of small businesses, go to DefendMainStreet.com. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. 